Happy Fourth, everybody. It's good to be with you. I've got my special Fourth of July USA shirt on. Yes. This is a great opportunity for us to thank God for this nation that we get to be citizens of and uh, to just uh, celebrate that with friends and family. We also this year get to celebrate that it's not last year. <laughs> last 4th of July was a little bleaker, uh, a little more distanced and so forth. And so we are so grateful for uh, the impact of the vaccines and uh, the freedom that it gives us to be more normal again. So that's a good thing. And just as a uh, family matter, meaning our Hope family, we are uh, celebrating the safe return home uh, of Staff Sergeant Brianna Greer. So, uh, yeah. Brianna has spent the last several months in the Middle East, and uh, so she is home, and I know the Greer and Garrison families are thrilled. So Brianna, welcome home, and um, we are grateful for your service, as well as the service of all of our men and women in uniform. So this morning, we're starting a new series that we're calling Own It. Own It. This is part of the popular vernacular these days. So to own it means uh, to admit uh, and take responsibility for something in your life, to own it. So for example, I'm going to own it that I am a New York Yankees fan. I know that makes me a terrible person <laughs> for some. And, uh, but, you know, my grandfather was a Yankee fan, my father, my brother, my, I was going to say my son, but not so much. Um, <laughs> I own it. I'm a Yankee fan. I own the fact that I believe that there is a central New Jersey. All right? I grew up there. I know that it exists. When I go north, they don't believe it. Down here, they don't believe it. But... I own the fact that I believe that there is a central New Jersey. And as long as I'm confessing things that I own, I own the fact that the very first concert I ever went to was a John Denver concert. For all true rock and rollers, that is anathema, and I know I'm being judged right now, but I like John Denver, and so I own that. <laughs> So owning it is being true to who you are, what you've done, what you believe, and not living in fear of the judgment of or the ridicule of others. So when it comes to your faith in Jesus, our call, our challenge is to own it, to own it. Too often, I think, as Christ followers, we keep our faith to ourselves, fearing that we will be labeled or judged by people uh, for things about that that may or may not apply to who we are. And so we, instead of owning it and, and you know, admitting it and living it and 
out loud and so forth, we kind of hide it almost as if we are embarrassed. And we're saying, hey, own it. I know a lot of folks who say, you know, well, my faith is, is private. It's between me and God. And what I always say to folks who share that with me is that while, yes, our faith is personal, it is not intended to be private. Jesus said that we are the light of the world, and what good is a light if you hide it under a bucket? And so we need to own it. I also know that one of the challenges for folks is that if I were to live my faith out in a more public way, you know, admitting my faith in a more um, consistent way in the various aspects of my life, in my workplace and in my neighborhood and in uh, groups that I might uh, be a part of, friendships, and even uh, in some cases in your family, that you may be asked questions to explain your faith. And at that point, you feel like, ah, you know, I'm not really sure enough. I don't have enough information. I don't know how really to talk about my faith. And so in this series, that's what we want to share. We want to talk in these four weeks about some basic aspects of our faith and how we can own it and how we can maybe talk about it in ways that, that are going to be helpful to you. And if that's something that you already do and, and that's a part of your faith, then I would say that maybe this series for you will be an encouragement and maybe some new uh, ways for you to be able to talk about your faith. So, of course, central to our faith is Jesus. And so this morning I want to talk a little bit about who is Jesus and why does Jesus matter? Who is Jesus and why does Jesus matter? And in this, I want to talk about four truths about Jesus, an historical truth, a spiritual truth, a practical truth, and an eternal truth about Jesus. So in just these few moments, four truths about Jesus, historical, spiritual, practical, and eternal. So when we talk about the historical Jesus, we need to understand that there is no credible historian that I know of who denies the reality of a man named Jesus who lived in first century Palestine and who had large crowds of people who followed him, who did amazing things in his lifetime, was crucified on a Roman cross, and whose followers claim that he was resurrected from the dead. That is an historical uh, reality and has the weight of historical evidence uh, to uh, the point that there is no real historian that would deny the fact of Jesus. But beyond that, there, Jesus uh, had a historical aspect to his life and his ministry. Jesus is the Messiah, or in the Greek, the Christ. He is the anointed or the chosen one of God. Jesus is the chosen one of God. The Hebrew prophets spoke of a coming anointed one, a coming chosen one, 
who would lead Israel to redemption. After his resurrection from the dead, well, actually, throughout his lifetime, Jesus talked about the fact that he was, in fact, the Messiah. But after his resurrection, as he was meeting with his disciples and kind of reminding them of all the things that he said and the things that he had done, Luke records this uh, conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. So it's from the 24th chapter of Luke, beginning with verse 25, and uh, Jesus said this. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe the prophets, what the prophets have spoken. Did I not, I'm sorry, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And he began with Moses and all of the prophets, and he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus is going back now to the ancient prophets and their talk about the Messiah and what the Messiah would do and who the Messiah would be. And he's saying, don't you see? That's me. That's who I am. And so I had to suffer all of these things for these reasons. So all of that to say that Jesus wasn't some random guy who happened to be a gifted speaker and could do sleight-of-hand tricks who came out of nowhere and created a religion. Jesus was part of God's unfolding redemption story that began from the moment of the fall of Adam and Eve and down through the centuries, down through the generations as God was doing his redemptive work. And it started, God's work started with the law and sacrifice through this old covenant. But always with this idea that a Messiah would be coming. And through this new Messiah, that we would no longer be under the law or the sacrificial system, that it would be a new covenant based on grace. That's the historical context in which Jesus came. That leads us then into the spiritual truth about Jesus. And the spiritual reality for every human being is that we all stand in need of forgiveness. All of us carry within us what is called sin or the sin disease. Okay, not a very popular word these days um, and very much misunderstood. But the nature of sin at its essence is that which separates us from a holy God. And all of us carry this separation from God. And we are powerless in our own effort to correct or to cure ourselves of this sin disease. And so a little illustration, you know, just to give you a sense of the human condition. 
Think of the worst person that you know, all right? No, not the person sitting next to you. Um, it typically, you know, we would think of Hitler, right? I mean, that's a bad, that's a bad guy. So Hitler would be, say, by way of illustration, five miles from God. You know, like if he was trying to get to God, he missed the mark by five miles. Now think of the best person that you know. And oftentimes in this illustration, people would talk about Mother Teresa. I don't know if Mother Teresa's been replaced by somebody these days, but, but you know, historically that was, that was the person we all thought of, this uh, woman who lived her life sacrificially among the poorest of the poor in uh, India, serving them and so forth. But if Mother Teresa did all of that but didn't have faith, she would miss the mark, maybe by half a mile but still missing the mark because of this separation, this sin disease that we all have. And so the reality of this spiritual condition has real implications in our lives, okay? This isn't just some theological framework and so forth. Sin has real implication in your life and in my life, not only in my relationship to God, but in my relationship to other people. So when we think about those things that screw up our lives, things like greed and fear and jealousy and violence and manipulation and all of those things in life that we experience maybe coming toward us and that we do to others, those things that screw up our lives, are sin at work in us, doing damage to our relationship with others. All of that is part of this sin disease. And the Bible tells us that the cost of sin is death. Death between our relationship with God, death in our relationships with one another, and ultimately the reality of physical death. In God's original creation, human beings were not designed to die, but sin entered in physical death as well. And so God, in his work to help us um, overcome this sin disease, not by our own effort, but by his work, created the law. And now the work was to live in obedience to the law. And of course, we couldn't do that. We couldn't follow the laws of God. And so we would fail and fail and fail. And so to get a restart, God created this system of forgiveness through sacrifice because the wage of sin is death. Someone, something has to die because of our sin. And so the sacrificial system became the system where a person would place symbolically his or her sin on a bird or an animal, and that animal would be slaughtered, and the blood, the death of that animal would then cover the sin 
so that the person might find forgiveness. And it was a way to remind us that the wage of sin is serious. It's death. In the Messiah, the Messiah comes, Jesus comes, the one who knows no sin, lives the perfect life. He then becomes the perfect sacrifice. So the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, the sin of the world is placed upon him. He becomes that sacrificial substitute. And in his death, his blood covers us. And his motivation for that is love. The motivation of the Messiah to make that sacrifice is love. So Luke 26, 28 says this. Jesus says to his disciples, and he's in the upper room. This is at the Last Supper, and he's informing them about what's to come and who he is and how he is now ushering in this new covenant, no longer based on the old system of law and sacrifice, now based on grace and faith in him. This is what Jesus said. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. We have this new spiritual status because of the sacrifice of Jesus. So we have the historical truth about Jesus. We have this spiritual truth about Jesus. And now there's this, what I would describe as a practical truth about Jesus. And that's this, that Jesus is the giver of new life. Jesus is the giver of new life. He not only forgives our sins, but then he begins a process in the believer, in the one who follows him, of a new life. In John 10, 10, it's one of my favorite uh, verses in the Bible, actually. Jesus is describing why he came. And so he said this, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have what? Life and have it to the full. Jesus said, I came to give the fullness of life, an abundant life to those who will follow me. So again, it's not just some spiritual transaction that took place, but that he comes to give us a full life. Not full of stuff, because that's not about a full life, but a life full of the best things in life, a life of meaning, a life of purpose, that in his work within us, that, that the Bible tells us that he is um, bringing fruit into our lives, working from the inside out, and so this fruit is being developed that's described in Galatians 5 as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that Jesus is developing in us so that we might experience the fullness of life. 
Now, you may be thinking, you know, I know some Christian people who are really terrible people, right? Like, I know they, they own it, right? They, they talk about their faith, and I, they claim to be forgiven of sin, and, and I believe that they are, but they're really kind of terrible people. They're judgmental, they're condemning, they're arrogant. What about them? And what I would say is that it is possible to have been forgiven by Jesus and not follow him, not live in the fullness of the life that Jesus promises. In a couple of weeks, Pastor Heather is going to be talking about the Holy Spirit, and she'll get into this uh, more, I'm sure. But our role in our redemption is to work, to live in cooperation with the Spirit at work in us. And so we can choose not to do that. We can choose to live our lives in our own direction, even after Christ has forgiven us. And we won't look very transformed at all. So it's this ongoing choice that we make to live our lives uh, living in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. This is what we're talking about when we say that a disciple is someone who is in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. This process is a decision that we make every day, every moment, every decision to live our lives in Christ. And as we do that, we experience a fullness of life. And then the fourth truth about Jesus is an eternal truth. Jesus is the way to an eternal life. You know, I read surveys a, a lot about, you know, people's thinking about spiritual things and so forth. And the last survey I saw, the vast majority of American people believe in an afterlife. They believe in heaven. The majority do. What I've found is when I ask somebody the question, so do you believe that you're going to go to heaven? The answer I hear most often is, I hope so. I hope so. And my response to that is, well, you can know so because Jesus said, I am the way. When we accept him and invite him into our lives, when he forgives our sins, we have the hope and the promise of an eternal life. Romans 6.23 puts it simply, for the wages of sin is death. Talked about that, right? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, you know, there's a ton of scriptures about this. But we do have this assurance that in Christ, not only is there an eternal life, but that we don't have to hope that we will achieve it, that we have this assurance in him. Again, not because of our righteousness, not because we've earned it, but because of this gift that we have through the Messiah who offers us forgiveness and who allows us to stand in the presence of a holy God 
not justified by our own actions, but covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. You know, I had a friend who used to say that we spend more time planning a week's vacation than we do on knowing whether or not we will spend or where we'll be spending eternity. And I thought, man, that's so true. And that friend is now living in eternity. He passed away several years ago and is living into that reality that he explored, he came to the understanding of who Jesus was, accepted Jesus, and was walking in faith. A little more important, I guess, than a week's vacation. Jesus said in the 14th chapter of John, again in this upper room gathering with his disciples, he said, you know, in my father's house, there are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you so that you'll be with me where I am, and you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas, God bless Thomas, you know, the guy who we call the doubter, uh, Thomas was the one who went, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. You come to the Father through me. We can know what eternity holds for us because of Jesus. So some people reject the idea of eternal life and believe that at the end of this life, you simply cease to exist. Others, when they think about eternity, hope that they're going to be in heaven. We can know through Jesus that that's our future. So are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus? Then own it. Own it. And know that historically, he is the promised Messiah. That through him, your spiritual condition has been changed from a sin nature to the Holy Spirit living in you. And that you have this fullness of life available to you as you walk in faith every day and that ultimately our hope is an eternal hope in him. That ain't a bad thing to own. Hey, let's join together in prayer. And so, Lord, on this day, when we as a nation celebrate our independence, we're reminded of how we are now free from the bondage of sin and the ways that it keep, kept us from being in a right relationship with the Father. And we thank you for your sacrifice on a cross that covers our sin. And we thank you for your resurrection and your Holy Spirit through which we experience a new life and an abundant life.
full of the best things that this life has to offer. And looking forward, Lord, to one day being with you and that great cloud of witnesses, men and women who lived lives of faith and obedience to you. That place where all of the ravages of sin are no more. And we get to live with you forever. We give you thanks and praise for all of that in the name of the one who is the Messiah, the chosen. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people agreed and said, amen. amen. Hey, have a great weekend, everybody.